welcome to Episode 5 of The Life and Times of the Osborne Man. I'm your host, Holly Hazard. Anyone who's been in business has experienced the highs and lows of the company convention. And even if we haven't, we've read about the culture of sales conventions. Some inspirational, some aggressive, some humiliating for the salesman who didn't make their nut or got, quote, skunked, end quote, as John Briggs would say. The Osborne Art Calendar Company was a large and extremely successful business in the 1920s. They had offices in the East, West, and throughout the Midwest. They seem to have had a company headquarters not only in Newark, New Jersey, but also in Ohio. Searching on eBay, I can find calendars that sold to businesses throughout the Midwest, including Minnesota and North Dakota. We'll find in 1920 they expanded to the Northwest as we have a letter from John's brother Frank, who is now a salesman in Everest, Washington. The company convention is at a very fancy hotel in Atlantic City towards the end of the year. This makes sense for the Osborne Company as the fall is the slow time for calendar companies. Everyone has their order for the coming year, and they aren't quite ready to buy for the year after. A few years from now, the Osborne Company will hold its convention in Washington, D.C. How do I know? I found a postcard of the entire company standing in front of the White House, Calvin Coolidge's White House, during that meeting. As John always does, he takes a break from his meetings to write home to Sue. It's clear from the letters that Sue sometimes accompanies him to these meetings and is friends with some of the wives of the company staff, but not this year. With four children at home from 11 years old to three and helping to tend to the farm, she stayed home while John, as usual, is out on the road. And now the letters from the convention in Atlantic City. The Chalfont Hotel, Atlantic City, New Jersey, November 28, 1910. My darling Susie, we have had our dinner and a visit with most of the men, and at nine by myself to have a little evening chat with my sweetheart. Taking train from Earlville, New York, to Atlantic City, New Jersey, we took our upper berths as engaged and retired soon after leaving Earlville. Guess my two-night meals were too much for me. And then, after going to bed, I discovered one of those fine king apples, and aside from that, the lunch is untouched. I rolled and tumbled and could not get to sleep for a long time, really believe we were already in Scranton before I got any sleep. Chauncey Brooks got on at Sherburn, so with Mr. Wright, we had quite a social party. We arrived at New York in time at about 7.45, and we took the Hudson Tunnel and landed at 23rd Street, where we had breakfast, Mr. Brooks with us. Clayton and I then looked around some of the stores and other places of interest, chief of which was the new Pennsylvania station at 33rd Street, which was open for the public yesterday. It is the largest railroad station in the world, and it is said will accommodate 100,000 people at a time. We found that we could get a train over to Atlantic City at 3 o'clock, so checked our grips and got down to the Osborne Company's offices just in time to go to lunch with Mr. Avery, Hurst, Wilson, and others. After a little more moving about, we took the train arriving here at 6.15 and just in time for a fine dinner and a pleasant reunion. When we reached here, it was sprinkling nicely, and since then, it has kept up a good steady rain, so we haven't been outside the hotel, 
and have no idea of the surroundings. The hotel is a fine one, and we have a splendid room with bath. The dinner was served in fine taste, and everything was well cooked. Just wish you were here. The following women are here, and there may be others. Mrs. Summers and Helen, Mrs. R. N. Bennett and little daughter, Oklahoma, Mrs. Tinker, Mrs. Topan, Mrs. Davis, have not yet seen Mrs. Summers to speak with her. All the fellows look about the same, and a good many of them have inquired very kindly of you, and say they wish you were here. I am going to retire early tonight, as I am tired. Accept much love and many kisses for my dear wife and four little ones. Your affectionate, Jack. The Chalfont Hotel, Atlantic City, New Jersey, November 29, 1910 My love, I wish you were here. If I thought it would do any good, I'd telegraph Mrs. Summers. I'm mad that you didn't come. Have just had lunch and had only a minute before our session at 2 p.m. Everything going nicely. Mrs. Proctor came this morning. Mrs. Proctor is well, but the baby is not very well. Hotel is fine, and meals are just right. If they hold it here next year, you are to come. Must stop. Love unbounded, Jack. The Chalfont Hotel, Atlantic City, New Jersey. Tuesday, 5 p.m., November 30th, 1910. My darling Sue, your good letter just received at the close of a busy day, and while about every fellow has gone out on the boardwalk, I have stolen away for a little chat with you. Was sorry to hear of the work you had thrust upon you through the new member of our family. Think we better part with it at once. It is very delightful weather here today, and convention is moving on nicely. We were shown the line today, and it's a stunner. Nothing like it ever happened before. Mr. Summers gave us the finest talk this p.m. that has ever been given at a convention I have attended. It was great. He is not very well. Mr. Tinker won the capital prize. Mr. Summers, second. Mr. Bennett and Mr. Kiger divided the money for second capital prize. And Mr. Summers takes prize for increase of business in territory. Smoker last night was enjoyable, and today I'm wearing a shirt and vest. Nothing new to write. We'll be glad to get home. The convention is hard work. Love without measure. Jack. John is excited by the new line and must have hopes for a great year ahead. When I publish the letter transcripts of the family, as I do every day on the website, theosborneman.com, I include the headlines from the New York Times to put the love letters in the context of the world around them. John's reference to the opening of Penn Station is the first time the Times and John's life have directly overlapped. I found John's awe of it moving, knowing how many times I've walked through it, likely the same halls as my great-grandfather over a century ago. Very cool. John references, quote, a new family member, end quote, in his letter. I assume he's talking about a cat or a dog who found their way to the house in Binghamton. By 1913, he wrote a letter with a poem to Marion about Tabby, her cat, who had died. 
I think that this must be another animal, as Tabby was quite elderly when she died. And I've got a photo of Marion with a kitten when she's about four years old. I presume that this is the elderly Tabby, and this creature referenced in the letter did not stay long with the family. In this week's episode, the part of John is narrated by Mike Sternad. Please mark your calendar for next Monday morning as one of the biggest twists in John's life that I've yet discovered is about to unfold. I can't wait. For more information on the life and times of John Briggs and his family and the complete library of letters transcribed to date, please visit and subscribe to theosburnman.com. If you liked this episode, you can help grow the podcast by rating it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, commenting, and of course, sharing with friends. This podcast is produced by Holly Hazard. Music is by Escalante Music from Pond 5. Thank you so much for listening.